everyone, I'm Amanda Borshaldan, and welcome to Times Will Tell, the weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Today, we have two really interesting, really nerdy interviews with two of Israel's leading archaeological scholars. The second half of our program is devoted to an interview with Weizmann Institute of Science professor Elisabetta Borretto, an internationally recognized leading expert in radiocarbon dating. But first, we'll speak with Tel Aviv University professor Erez Ben Yosef, who since 2013 has led the excavations at Timna. It is the site of the fabled King Solomon copper mines and their surroundings. As you'll hear, the excavation is currently concentrating on the Iron Age activity of the nomadic kingdom of Edom. The team has uncovered all sorts of 3,000-year-old artifacts, including three super rare textiles that are dyed with the precious argaman, or true royal purple that is mentioned in the Bible. I wrote an in-depth article on the true purple textile discoveries, and you can find a link to it in our program notes. Based on Erez's excavations at Timna and other archaeological evidence, Erez will explain his theory of a nomadic early Israelite united monarchy. Be sure to stick around afterwards and hear all about C14 dating and a new study by Professor Elisabetta Borretto. Hi, Erez. Thank you for joining me. Where am I finding you today? Hi, Amanda. I'm in my office at Tel Aviv University. So you have been excavating at Timna since, what, 2013, is that correct? Yes, the first excavation season of Tel Aviv University was in 2013. And since then, we excavate ev- almost every year. We skipped only one year in 2018. And what has uh, been among the most uh, remarkable finds that you've uh, come across so far in the excavations? One, one, one of the most unique things about Timna is the un, it's the amazing preservation of organic materials. We find stuff that uh, you usually don't find in regular excavations, like uh, textiles, ropes, leather, things that uh, usually decay and uh, do not preserve. And that's because of where it's located, essentially. Can you set the context of where Timna is? It's deep in the Israeli desert. It's not so. It's not far from the city of Elat, about uh, twenty-five kilometers to the north of Elat, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a, an extremely dry climate. It's like uh, even in the desert, it's uh, less humid than the rest of the Negev and uh, the other side of the Arava Valley, like the Jordanian Desert. It's really a unique, extremely dry location. And it's paralleled only with like the Judean desert caves and uh, some locations in Masada, uh, which are usually dated to much later periods. And in Timna, the big story is related to the early Iron Age. We're talking about the 11th, the 11th to the 9th centuries BCE. And this is a very debated period in the history of the land. Uh, so we have a unique w- window into the people of the region at that very early period through these amazing and unique organic uh, materials that we have like dozens and dozens of fragments of what I just mentioned, textiles, ropes, leather, cordage, basketry, things that usually you don't find. But Timna itself is mostly known for its copper mining. Uh, the quote-unquote Solomon copper mines, which are debatably not 
Solomons, correct? <laughs> we, we, we talk about that because we, we brought back to the table the discussion about King Solomon's mines. Timna, yes, of course, people went there because of the copper. Timna is an ancient copper ore district with a very long history of copper exploitation, starting probably as early as the 5th millennium BCE and uh, going all the way to the early Islamic period, uh, like 1400 years ago. And even uh, recently, uh, like in the early days of the Israeli state, uh, we had a small factory that produced copper there. So yeah, Timna is first and foremost uh, known for its copper. And uh, indeed, what we excavate is actually the copper smelting sites, the places where they made copper in furnaces, and in other installations. Uh, that's is, this is actually what we excavate in team. Now, when I was there last summer, I immediately emailed you because I was looking around and there's absolutely almost no vegetation. And so when you're talking about smelting, you need a lot of wood in order to do that. You had a very interesting theory then in terms of how they were actually producing enough material to burn. Can you share a little bit about it now? We have an ongoing research into the charcoal remains of the fuel, like uh, what we see on the sites, because it's one of the most intriguing questions. What was the fuel in this very arid place? And we, the results that we, you know, uh, haven't published yet, but we have <laughs> <Sneak> indications. <preview. laughs> yeah, it's a, for a preview, we just see together with experts on ancient uh, Wood, uh, Dr. Dafla Langot here, my colleague and my student, Mark Kavana, we see that indeed the vegetation was the most important, uh, the key limiting factor. Uh, they did use the local vegetation. We do have some trees in the desert, like the acacia tree and the white broom, which is a big shrub with uh, deep roots. So they were using this kind of uh, vegetation in order to prepare charcoal for the furnaces, but indeed uh, periods where copper production uh, ceased, ended, uh, many of these events are related to a complete exploitation of the local uh, fuel. So uh, this is a, an important part of what we see in Timna. And uh, sometimes they even imported wood from far away, but this was not very economical. It's if it if it happened, it's it, it's it was the end of the the industry. Okay, so fascinating. But we're actually here together today to speak about a new study that just has come out in Plus One, the highly regarded scientific journal, about the textiles that were found at uh, Timna and the very, very rare and important dyes that were discerned upon them. So tell us, first of all, where were these textiles found? In what kind of context? So uh, these finds were uh, located in Slaves Hill. It's uh, probably the largest copper smelting camp in the valley uh, that we've been excavating for probably the last six years. Um, And, uh, you know, right away we had some tiny pieces of textiles coming out of the ground. Many types of textiles, some of them related to rough... uh, tent uh, uh, coverings, and uh, some of them are uh, probably some sacks, 
and stuff like that. But some of these pieces were colored, and uh, if only three of them were colored with purple. And uh, we suspected it might be, uh, you know, some kind of a plant-based dyes. And we couldn't believe it's the true purple that this is the story about. And, uh, and this ha uh, we found that only when uh, we got the results from the lab uh, recently, like a few, a year ago, we, uh, Na Dr. Nama Sukenik took these samples to the lab in Barilan University. Uh, you know, there is many experts involved in this research. And the analytic uh, uh, results demonstrated, indicated clearly that we are talking about true purple, about the color Argaman, which was a very famous color at the time, a, a, a color that is mentioned many times in the Hebrew Bible, And uh, th this was a big deal. We, it's very early period to find a uh, true purple in use. And it's a very strange location. It's deep in the desert, but we didn't think uh, these prestigious materials uh, were in use. So uh, this uh, it was another evidence for uh, our new understanding of nomadic people at that time period, at the time of the... A emergence of these ancient kingdoms of Israel, Edom, Moab, Ammon, the local kingdoms of the biblical times. Okay, before we get to that, which is so fascinating, and we will definitely discuss it, what is the dating of these textiles and how were they dated? So the site itself we knew is dated to the late 11th and early 10th centuries BCE, so about 3,000 years ago. And this is, uh, you know, we, we, we dated the uh, seeds, date seeds, and other things throughout the years. Uh, and this is a, an interesting thing in itself. Uh, we, the, the most intense production of copper is now dated to this uh, period, which is, according to the Bible, the time of King David and Solomon in Jerusalem. King David is around 1000 BCE and Solomon, his son, 960 BCE, something like that. And from this exact period, we have the, the most intense production in Timna. So again, we question ourselves, are these King Solomon's mines? Can this be possibly the source of wealth of Jerusalem in this uh, uh, period in particular? And Solomon did use huge quantities of copper in the, constru in the construction of the Jewish temple in, in Jerusalem. And here we have a copper production site from this specific period. And the, what you're calling the true purple is also used in the building of the temple, correct? There are two different forms of this purple. There's argaman and trelet. First of all, can you tell us what are the differences? And number two, any kind of biblical or historical links that you may have to offer? Yeah, so we found these uh, textiles. They were, you know, purplish, nicely uh, colored. And then we had this uh, result, this analysis, this experiment that indicated uh, clearly, beyond any doubt, that this is the true purple, Argaman. And then, because it was so early and so unique, uh, we dated this one of these three pieces directly uh, by radiocarbon. Because uh, it's organic material, so we are lucky we can send it to the radiocarbon lab. We work with Oxford. And we got a direct date of one of the species that went together with the dating of the site, uh, 1000 BCE, exactly this unique 
uh, period in the history of the region. And if we go back to the Bible, uh, as you mentioned, there is a, a, th- this color together with tchelet were used as part of the garments of the high priests in the temple. And uh, I- I- interestingly uh, enough, it's also the color of the garments of kings. And in particular, in the book of Judges, we hear about the kings of Midian. So Midian is somewhere around the region of Timna. Uh, according to most scholars, it should be uh, somewhere in northwestern Arabia. So it's in this region. And we have in Timna evidence for the presence of people from Midian. Um, and, and in that particular time, we hear that the kings of these people were, uh, uh, were wearing Algaman uh, garments. So this is quite uh, unique. And uh, we can continue talking about the Algaman in the Bible. There are many references, uh, almost 40 different references to this color, including uh, from the period of the tabernacle. It's as part of the construction of the tabernacle. We have uh, uh, the use of Algaman uh, textiles. And uh, you mentioned trelet, which is also a very important uh, color uh, in the Hebrew Bible and even later on in the Jewish tradition is part of the talit. Uh, it's a, a, an important uh, mitzvah to have a, 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 ptil, a, 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 a tassel of trelet in the talit. And these colors are, are very close to each other. Uh, actually, are they not created from the same sea creature, the sea snail uh, murex? Right. So, uh, <clears throat> Argaman, the, why the color is so unique first because it was rare and hard to produce. And as you said, it was based on sea snails, three s- different species of sea snails. And uh, 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 the color was very strong and it lasted for many years. Apparently, thousands of years. <laughs> exactly. So, um, and this is what made this color very important in antiquity. Even later on in the Roman period, we hear about this color all the time. So, uh, it's specific sea snails, and the differences between Argaman and Trelet is uh, mostly related to the exposure to light during the dying process. As more uh, the color is uh, exposed to light, uh, we have a brighter uh, result or a more bluish color at the end, which is the trellet, uh, which is the light blue or azure, uh, this kind of uh, use. But basically, uh, if we talk about the technology, it was the same technology, and the colors are usually appear uh, one next to the other, in the Hebrew Bible, in other texts, uh, the, pol- the colors that we found specifically are purple, the purple, the Argaman shades. And uh, so actually there was some difference between the pieces and one of these uh, uh, this textile pieces was found to be dyed with two species of snails, which is uh, described in antiquity by Roman historians especially uh, Pliny the Elder, as a unique technique, the double dyeing technique, uh, to produce a stronger color and a more resistant color. So uh, we think we have 
at least in one of the government's evidence for this double dying technology. That's so fascinating. And if I'm not mistaken, the sea snails are not found in the Red Sea. They came from, the dye came from very, very far away, or at least the textiles came from very far away, correct? Yeah. Uh, the, <coughs> the sea snails uh, for the, this color are indigenous to the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, we we know that this was a craft, the dyeing, uh, was a craft of the Phoenicians, maybe probably other uh, cultures as well, but uh, the, the nearest place will be the Phoenician coast, which will be from the site of Tel Dor, a little bit south of, south of Haifa, and towards the north into the coast of uh, modern-day Lebanon. It's actually so what what is such a wealthy, rich textile doing so far away on Slaves Hill? Um, this goes together with other evidence that we have for the society uh, in Timna being uh, stratified, being uh, uh, actually even centralized with some elite that were was using this kind of uh, exquisite garments and other things like uh, good food and uh, some jewelry and other little objects in order to... Um, to manifest the social status or to have their, uh, you know, place in this society. That uh, we didn't talk about that, but we see it as the early phase of the Edomite kingdom. The Edomite kingdom that was uh, to the south of ancient Israel. Uh, we hear about the Edom many times in the Bible. King David uh, go to the south of the Dead Sea conquered the land of the Edomites, put garrisons all over the land. And uh, since the days of David, uh, the Edomites were subjugated to Jerusalem. So uh, these early Edomites, uh, what is interesting in all of this story, that they were still nomadic. We don't have towns, we don't have fortresses, we don't have stone-built palaces. So uh, we are lucky to know about them mostly because they engaged in in copper production. Copper production uh, that left behind thousands of mines, the copper smelting sites, and all of this unique organic assemblage of textiles and and stuff like that. So the interesting uh, thing is that uh, we have uh, evidence for... uh, complex society, a kingdom, if you want, that was still nomadic. And this is kind of a, it goes against the conventional understanding of nomads in biblical time. Usually when people think about nomads, before, uh, you know, the settlement of the Israelite tribes uh, and the other peoples in this region, they think about the Bedouins, the Bedouins of today. This is the ethnographic parallel that everybody is using. So, the Bedouins are—they uh, can create sometimes some tribal coalitions and stuff, but this was always considered as uh, weak, and these societies were considered to be marginal. And the land is always dangerous and without law, and you need to—you know—all of these uh, stories from the nineteenth and early twentieth century, and actually even today. Uh, uh, the Bedouins present one specific form of nomadic existence, 
And, you know, until recently we thought, okay, the tribes of ancient Israel, the tribes of Edom were Bedouins until they got civilized and, and, and built towns and built photos. What we see here is that the situation was completely different, completely different. Uh, while still nomadic, these Edomite tribes got together, created a tribal confederation, and were able to maintain a huge copper production operation, uh, control the trade of it, uh, and uh, you know establish a, a hierarchy. Um, and uh, actually, the biblical authors uh, could definitely treat this entity as a kingdom in the biblical sense. Uh, so this is one of the insights that we have from, investi- from, from our chance of investigating a nomadic uh, population in high resolution uh, because of all of the materials they left behind while working on producing copper at that time period. So essentially what you're saying is just because we haven't found a castle doesn't mean there wasn't a kingdom. And so I would assume that you have some insight into Jerusalem as well of the same period in which we are always searching for the structures that symbolize King David and his early kingdom. But perhaps what it sounds like what you're saying is maybe there just weren't permanent huge structures. Right. Or that many, or that permanent huge structures was not the main way to uh, establish uh, uh, this kind of uh, s- uh, social uh, structure that we can see in a kingdom. Uh, it is widely accepted by, I'm talking about archaeologists and biblical scholars, that ancient Israel indeed had a nomadic origin. This is a, a, a this is the biblical story itself. But even without the Bible, I think there is a wide agreement that these people that eventually we recognize them in the hill country came from a nomadic origin. There is some arguments if they were nomads of uh, local nomads of the hill country, or did they come from the east, or did they come all the way from Egypt? Some of them, but basically everybody agrees that we are talking about. Uh, uh, nomadic tribes. But then uh, the basic assumption in research is that when we're talking about a monarchy from the days of Saul and, and, and David and Solomon for sure, all the population was settled because it was not, it didn't make sense to scholar to associate nomads with a kingdom. But if you uh, look carefully at the biblical description and also on the archaeology, it's quite clear that the uh, the, no, the, the sedentarization, the settlement process was very gradual. We shouldn't accept, expect these tribes to become sedentary, settled within a generation. It takes m- many generations for this process to happen. And now we know that even prior to the complete sedentarization of every everybody, we could have had uh, complex socio-political structures. So definitely this early Israelite kingdom could have had a significant portion of the population still nomadic and could have uh, embedded within its customs uh, some symbols and values from this nomadic tradition. So what we usually as archaeologists are looking for to find signs of a big kingdom, what you 
what you've mentioned, like big structures, uh, walls, dense cities, uh, uh, cities with like uh, some uh, differences between classes and stuff like that. Uh, we, we, we shouldn't necessarily look for this in order to prove or disprove the, 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 the biblical story. We have here a very uh, different situation uh, in which uh, 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 this kind of societies could have been quite uh, historically significant without leaving behind uh, you know, permanent structures. And some hints are found in this new uh, study of the textiles with the royal purple in a place that you wouldn't have necessarily expected it in, according to traditional thinking. Right, because it's clear for us that uh, the elite of these ancient Edomites that were still nomadic uh, got access, had access to the most expensive goods at the time. So, uh, being, you know, uh, rich and wealthy doesn't necessarily mean immediately that you build a shiny stone castle. This is something that we project from today, maybe from the perception of nomadism by uh, even today by modern society. Sometimes I, um, in my lectures, I, I talk about this idea of having uh, nomads that uh, created the uh, kingdoms and maybe King David had a nomadic tradition and had a tent outside of the palace and, and people are kind of uh, some some people take it like as an insult to King David because even today by the, the general public when you talk about these Bedouins they don't uh, appreciate it as a very uh, you know a very fancy lifestyle or very uh, stable lifestyle but we have to uh, break free from this uh, perception, from this uh, uh, idea of, of, of nomads and think about these people differently. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. Now we'll hear from Professor Elisabetta Borretto, who generously explained to this science dummy the basics of radiocarbon dating. Part of what makes the work done in her lab so noteworthy is that, unlike most pure scientists, she and her team are regularly out in the field working alongside the archaeologists. We delve into an aspect of a new study looking at an old find, an almost 4,000-year-old olive branch, which is the only remaining organic sample from the pivotal volcanic eruption on the Greek island of Santorini. Through new experiments on 70-year-old olive branches, Elisabetta offers a new resolution to an ongoing debate over the timing of the eruption. The conversation is quite technical and detailed. I learned a lot, and I hope you do too. Enjoy. Hi, Elisabetta. Thank you for joining me. Where am I finding you? Oh, I'm in my office at the Weizmann Institute. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. even with the corona Sometimes it's good to be at work. <laughs> For sure. That is so true. Um, we are here to speak about uh, carbon-14, which is basically, Mamash, it's very ubiquitous in the toolbox of archaeologists today. But that definitely was not always the case. What is the origin of carbon-14 dating? When did it start? 
Well, carbon-14 uh, has been, uh, as a technique, uh, was invented in 1947 uh, by a chemist, uh, William Libby. So then it became uh, the most common and used method uh, to date uh, material. So the method is mostly, but not only, aimed to provide the age of an object. Now, in order to, um, to use it as a dating method, we must uh, measure the concentration of this uh, very special atom, C14 radiocarbon, which is a radioactive one. By its concentration compared to the other carbons, uh, the carbon-12 and the carbon-13, which are not radioactive, we can calculate uh, the age of the material. So the least C14 we find, the oldest will be the material. But the clock works because all the uh, living systems, humans, animals, uh, trees, uh, the leaves on the trees, uh, uh, all these uh, biological systems, contain, while they are alive, uh, the same amount of C14. It's only when they die that they don't exchange with the surround uh, uh, world, and uh, therefore the C14 concentration decreases with time. Now you can ask, but how do I get the C14? Well, the C14, you get it through the food, uh, which is uh, in the food because of the trees, they do the photosynthesis and they take the C14 from the atmosphere using the CO2, the carbon dioxide, but the carbon dioxide get continuously new C14 because it is produced by the cosmic rays all the time in the upper atmosphere. So as it is produced, then it is uh, incorporated in all the living uh, uh, systems. At the same time, uh, the C14 also decay, and these two uh, processes, the production and the decay, maintain the concentration of C14 in the atmosphere and in all the systems which exchange uh, with uh, that atmosphere, so is constant. At the moment, as I say, we stop this exchange, then the concentration can only decrease. And so we can measure it and calculate how much time elapsed from when this organism die. It's so interesting and so much to wrap your head around. A couple of questions. Number one, how far back can you date things using C14? The method is uh, valid up to 50,000 years ago, more or less. So this allowed us to measure the, the arrival, for example, of the modern humans from Africa into Europe, changes uh, uh, during the uh, Upper Paleolithic, which is a very important period for the evolution of, uh, of man. And uh, later and later uh, until today. Okay, another question. You're talking about the atmosphere, which, if I'm not mistaken, changes depending upon where you are in the world, does it not? Well, yeah, the atmosphere may change, but in the atmosphere, 
let's say that the concentration is constant. What change actually the concentration of C14 is uh, if the cosmic rays uh, are more or less intense or uh, the geomagnetic field uh, of the Earth. Uh, this can change uh, the production of the C14 in the atmosphere and the climate can change the uh, distribution of C14 uh, in uh, the atmosphere or in the ocean. So we indeed should know um, when these uh, changes happen so that we can uh, calculate uh, the time when we measure the C14 in an accurate way. Okay, so a lot of what you're doing is part of a calibration scale as well, correct? Meaning it's not just a number that you get and then doof, you're done. You have to put it inside some kind of calibration tool. So could you explain a bit about this as well? Exactly. So uh, I see that you are uh, on, the <laughs> on the spot. Uh, that's uh, very good. Indeed, uh, because of all this variation, uh, which uh, oscillates, uh, you know, up, and down the what we say the constant level of C14, we need uh, in an archive uh, a library that can tell us uh, about uh, the uh, per year or per ten years what was the C14 in the atmosphere at that time, and this is what we call it a calibration, and is mostly based up to something like twelve thousand years. is based on three rings because the, when the, the tree make uh, every year a new rings, it will record in that ring the C14 concentration that was in the atmosphere. If it was a little bit higher or lower than uh, the, the constant level or what we call it a constant level in C14. And this we have uh, this library up to 12,000 years, and then we use other libraries like uh, stalagmite, uh, corals, uh, uh, sediments in the lakes, uh, which are also uh, can be counted uh, in years. So we have a library with an absolute date and then uh, the measurement of C14, and this allowed us uh, to date. Our work uh, was indeed uh, on um, this... Uh, um, olive tree, which is, uh, you know, in the Mediterranean is one of the most important, uh, not only uh, symbolic uh, tree for uh, peace and so on, but also in our diet is very important. Olives and olive oil uh, is in the Mediterranean uh, diet, uh, one of the major components. Before we get to the study of the olive tree, uh, another question about the tree ring itself. Now, trees grow at varying rates depending upon, one, where they are, and number two, what kind of tree they are. So when you're talking about a library of tree rings, are you talking about one specific tree or has it been averaged from all sorts of different trees from different parts of the world? The work uh, that has been done uh, to build uh, this calibration curve, uh, as we call it, uh, um, has compared the trees uh, from different parts uh, of uh, the two hemispheres, which have a, a little bit of difference uh, in C14, uh, 
due to the fact that in the southern hemisphere there is more uh, sea, ocean, water than land. But the tree that were used initially are the oak in uh, Europe, in Ireland, Germany, and the Bristol Cone Pine from California, which can live for a thousand years. So these were the major trees used and have been shown to be practically the same in C14. They record the same concentration. Now, oftentimes people talk about a plateau in which the dating of C14 is unclear. I, I, I'd never understood this. Could you explain a little bit? Oh, the, that's a difficult question because it is easier when you can show something, uh, but it's a challenge to explain uh, without uh, any visual uh, help. So um, the curve, uh, the calibration curve, uh, uh, when it is uh, shown uh, in, uh, you know, you have to imagine that on one side, uh, um, in the X axis, you have uh, the single years, like uh, the year 2000, uh, 1999, 1150, and, and all the, the years, the absolute years uh, that are the rings of the different trees that have been measured. On the y-axis, on the other axis of the plot, you have the concentration of C14 that can be also translated in time by the um, radioactive uh, uh, equation. So you can calculate uh, what that concentration means in time. The plateau is when uh, um, you measure a certain concentration of C14 and this concentration uh, or the time that is related to that concentration could be related to long periods uh, in uh, the three rings. So instead to have uh, 10 years and 10 years in correspondence between the measured, calculated, and the calibrated, you have maybe 200 years, uh, that could be two, 300 years, that could be all possible uh, to be related to the measured age with C14. Like I measured the age with plus minus 20, but when I go for the calibration, I see that this age could represent 300 years in the calibration. So I don't know actually when this object or this tree or this human lived. I have 300 years of possibility. And what years is this for uh, chronologically in, in terms of our Gregorian calendar? There are several plateaus, more or less uh, longer. There is one uh, during the Persian period uh, that uh, start uh, when Jerusalem was uh, destroyed, more or less, for in this region, at least. But it's called the Alstadt Plateau and creates a lot of problems when you have to date something between uh, uh, 700, 650, and uh, 450, 300. Uh, BC. In the region of uh, the Middle Bronze Age, like in the middle of the second millennium uh, BC, like uh, 1700, 600, and 1500, 
there is also a kind of plateau, like uh, the, the, the calibration is uh, flat uh, or slopey very, very little. And so it means that when you date uh, a seed, which lived one year, a seed, so you, you could have uh, multiple solution that can cover 150 years. So, so it, is, it is a headache when you have this, uh, this time of period to be investigated. It's more than a headache. It's extremely confusing. And I think for most people, especially since uh, carbon-14 dating has become so prevalent in archaeology, most people just think, ah, you pop something in a machine and you get out a number and we're done, right? But it's obviously <laughs> much more complicated than that. <laughs> Now let's let's speak about your new study, uh, which was involving uh, olive tree rings, and uh, specifically part of the study uh, concerns the Santorini olive branch, which was, I believe, the sole carbon evidence from the eruption of Thera, which was what three thousand, four thousand years ago. Yeah. So um, the beginning uh, when we start to work with this olive, uh, the idea was not to check a Santorini, but. Uh, Everything came together as a surprise because uh, we wanted to know, our major question was, does uh, the olive tree build uh, annual rings? Because so far, uh, if you use the classical method, uh, you observe uh, with the microscope uh, um, the, the building up of the rings and you call it the dendrochronology and you measure the size of these, uh, the thickness of the rings. For the olive tree, this was impossible. They made a study, they send it to well-trained dendrochronologists, the same uh, olive uh, fraction of olive piece, and they came back with uh, very different counting of the rings. So the rings are very small and uh, are very small and uh, impossible to, to count uh, with a microscope. So you have to use either micro CT to see changes in density between the beginning of the new ring and the, the development of the ring during the same years, or you have to use a C14. So we wanted to, to use a C14 first and uh, to be unrelated uh, to our counting of the rings somehow. So we took uh, a branch, which we cut it in 2013. So we knew somehow the last ring when it was formed. And uh, we wanted to use uh, the bomb peak uh, of the C14. This, uh, this bomb peak uh, is uh, a huge increase in the concentration of C14 during the 60s uh, due to the um, nuclear experiment. Is the bomb peak uh, something that others in your field use as a way of dating something? It's a known way of dating more than dating, uh, you use it to understand uh, atmospheric uh, science, how the air moved, uh, how the ocean uh, exchange, uh, because it's so specific uh, and the concentration of C14 uh, uh, increased so much and so rapidly that, you know, you have uh, almost month by month uh, how much uh, C14 was introduced in the atmosphere by the nuclear test. So it's very, very good. Uh, to not so much for dating in a sense, but to measure other processes in our world. 
And uh, we used this peak uh, that we know exactly how much is the C14 uh, during the, from the 55 uh, until 2010. And uh, we took a section of this branch uh, and we just cut uh, 20 milligram after 20 milligram after 20 milligram. We didn't uh, do it uh, year by year, ring by ring. We just cut the wood uh, 20 milligram after the other and measure the C14 in those 20 milligrams of cellulose and also measure the stable isotopes, the C13 and C12. And we reproduced exactly the bone peak and with the Delta C13, the stable isotopes, we could see when the uh, tree started the new ring and this is in April. So the, the olive, is starting the new ring in April and go to sleep or decrease very much his activity in October, November. Okay, so in this way, we could, with the stable isotope, we saw the up and down per year of the stable isotopes. And with the C14, we knew exactly which year we are looking at. So at the end of these studies, we saw that the olive tree does single tree ring, like build a, a ring every year. These are very small, you cannot count, but you can see with the micro CT as changing density. And at the end, in the last 1.5 centimeter of the tree, with the micro CT, this was another surprise. You could count uh, very few rings with a micro CT, but still you have uh, 30 years of growth. So somehow from 1977, uh, this branch did not uh, develop uh, a ring every year, or at least uh, we were not able to see even with a micro CT, but we could see with uh, the C14. So it is a very special tree. And this importance is because um, if we could use it, uh, since it lived pretty long, uh, about 300 years, uh, the olive uh, tree can survive. So if uh, when we find, uh, you know, uh, an olive tree in archaeological record, which is charred, uh, then uh, the expectation are that we could use it as a climatic uh, uh, library because every year it will record the stable isotopes which are related to the rainfall and with the C14 you can calculate the age. So it was like a library of a past climate. This was our purpose. But uh, when we succeeded to see uh, the single year, then uh, and the fact that the last centimeter and a half could hide 30 years of the tree, we start to think about Santorini because Santorini was dated in the 17th, at the end of the 17th century, the eruption of Santorini by a branch of olive tree. And so we start to think, okay, let's assume that this branch in the last centimeter and a half, which was not measured uh, for Santorini, hide 30 years. Let's assume uh, that uh, this branch was still standing uh, uh, already 40 years 
but not growing because we have evidence in another paper that, uh, you know, the olive tree can grow on one side and just stop growing on the other side for uh, 30, 40 years. So let's assume that this br the branch that we're using Santorini to date uh, the Santorini eruption was measured correctly, but they missed let's say 50, 60 years uh, at the end of the branch. So this will add uh, these years uh, to the eruption of Santorini. We just uh, misinterpreted uh, the data uh, measuring that branch. And, and so it will push the Santorini eruption in the uh, 16th century, which in, for some archeologists is the correct date of Santorini eruption. And so the controversy that exists for the Santorini eruption uh, is still uh, uh, back uh, in, uh, in the discussion because it was based uh, on a branch of, of uh, olive tree, which uh, was not studying in the detail as we did with this branch. So there could be 50 years missing. Recently also there been uh, an updated uh, calibration curve uh, using single year um, C14 determination, which showed that in that time there could be a plateau. And this will make the uncertainty in the uh, determination of the age uh, a little bit uh, uh, more complex. So, Altogether, I think that Santorini eruption is still holding back uh, <laughs> the, the true age uh, and some more work is needed uh, both in, arche in archaeological research uh, and in C14 research to figure out uh, uh, exactly when the Santorini eruption took place. But your study is, in a way, forgive the pun, an olive branch between different schools of thought and trying to make peace between both of them with this hypothesis. Uh, I would like to make peace, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think, you know, that as every research, uh, first of all, uh, uh, methodology is uh, super important. You have to have a very solid methodology and as a every good paper, at the end of your research, uh, you answer some question, but you uncover or discover other questions that uh, push you to continue the research. And this is why we do research. It's never ending because every time you answer something, you have another question based on the results. So that's beautiful. Let's keep you always young, I think. <laughs> As a very wise woman, that would be you, told me once, uh, science is a dialogue and it's a beautiful thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yofi, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Really. Bye. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. Mm -hmm.